You are listening to the Enormo cast. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the uh, Enormo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big house. place. That's, out. Out. That's a big nice. place. You sold What's it that out. I'll say, you really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Good weather, bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes and the fine folks at La Sportiva. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Caloose. It is December 21st. The solstice is upon us. The longest, shortest day of the year. Feels long. It's actually short. Anyway, it's about 10 o'clock here in Carbondale, Colorado, the nighttime. But guess what? Tomorrow we start going towards the light once again. Yes, you know this is a big problem for me, the darkness. But I'm soldiering through. So here we are with episode 142 of the Enormacast, a conversation with big wall legend, Mr. John Middendorf. But before we get to that, guess what? I missed the Enormacast birthday. That's right. The very first Enormacast was posted on December 9th, 2011, which was six years ago at this point. So happy birthday to the Enormacast. Here we are. Six years in. Can't believe it myself. Just for you on your birthday, we love you very much. So have a fucking birthday. Please have it fucking birthday. Speaking of the funk, I'm really looking forward to 2018. I think I'm going to bring some of the funk back to the Enormacast. It's gotten a little too slick, a little bit too, uh, you know, tried and true. So we're going to bring some funk back um, starting with the next episode. I got a pretty funky one for you. Okay, a small bit of business to take care of. First of all, took the commercials off the start of the show just as a, as a nod to Letting consumerism mellow out a little bit here at Christmas time. You guys have bought everything you need, probably. We're all good to go till 2018. I do want to give a shout out to Rocksteady Body Works and Jessa over there. Rocksteady Body Works actually let me use their space for this interview. It's in downtown Salt Lake City, across from the State Theater above the bayou. And it's a premier massage practice for active climbers, skiers, runners, mountain bikers, Jessa is a backcountry rider, mountain biker, and she understands what you need. And got a couple friends actually that go there, a couple climbers that get deep tissue massage, joint mobilization, 
all the stuff you need to keep crushing. Shout out to them, rocksteadybodyworks.com in Salt Lake City. If you need that sort of work done in Salt Lake, please check them out. They were very generous to let me use their space. Okay, let's talk about John Middendorf, legendary wall climber, the founder and brains behind A5 Adventures, his company that produced the legendary A5 Portal Edge, as well as a bunch of other gear like the Bird Beaks. And when John created those designs for Portal Edges, he certainly changed the game quite literally for wall climbing because the Portal Edges that he was building could go up in just about any conditions and people could stay up on a wall for as long as they had supplies, weather out storms. It just changed the game, not only in Yosemite, but more importantly in the Great Ranges, the Baffin Islands, the Patagonia, going up into stormy conditions and being able to survive made all the difference for what became 10 day and two week. And even, I think we talk about a wall in Baffin that took 40 some days in the portal edge. So pretty rad and pretty cool stuff. Now, I think he had moved on a little bit when I showed up in the Valley, but his influence was certainly there, even though I was running a fish ledge for most of my climbs. Hey, Russ, fish products, come on the show. You're listening get in touch. Would love to talk to you. Back to John. It was really cool to sit down with him um, because again, he was sort of a hero of mine and influenced what I was doing on walls, certainly, just like he influenced everybody. And also, you know, he's in Tasmania these days. So I had to stalk him online and figure out that he was here and kind of reached out to him, but he got right back and was excited to do the show. The reason he was here is because he's back in the design game, producing the D4 Portal Edge, which we talk a lot about a new Portal Edge design, lighter, stronger, more badass, and they're producing small batches of those, the D4 Portal Edge, which we talk about quite a bit in the, sh- in the show. So go check that out and check this out, conversation with John Middendorf. How did you end up in Tasmania? Well, about uh, 15 years ago, I actually went to school after, uh, to study my engineering mm-hmm. because actually I was looking for a way to update my engineering skills. Uh, when I studied engineering, it was all basically, you know, calculators. And so, of course, there's a lot of new computer tools for engineering. And so I really needed to learn those skills. And I looked at American universities, quite expensive. Over in Australia, it was quite affordable, actually, to get a master's in engineering. So I went over there to Sydney University in New South Wales. And uh, and did the first half of my master's, and while I was there, I realized like Australia was a great opportunity, uh, and so I applied for my permanent residency mm-hmm. and got sponsored by the state of Tasmania actually, and uh, eventually I got that. And but in the meantime, I came back to America, and I was working as a river guide at the time. This was after I sold my business, and uh, I was working in the Grand Canyon for for Canex, and I met my wife Jenny. And uh, over the next few years, I talked her into trying out Australia. And uh, but we've been there now for ten years, and we love it. It's a great place to raise our two kids. We have a little girl, Remy, and my boy, Rowan. And it's just a wonderful environment, really, because it's it's uh, it's it's. I guess it's sort of like how America might have been twenty five years ago. Just things are a little bit less hectic and 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 more peaceful. I would say. And isn't Tasmania like even maybe? A little bit 
slower behind, like exactly. than Sydney, yeah. Melbourne, and that kind of place, and that kind of thing. Too. Yeah, like I it's mean, a little countrified, right? Well, I mean, it, most of the mainland Australians think of, uh, and, and no offense to West Virginia or, or West Virginians, but um, you know, they consider Tasmania sort of the backwoods of Australia. Sure, but in reality, it's quite a modern city, and you know, here in Hobart, Hobart, yeah, yeah, we're just outside of Hobart, but um, you know, we have the new Mona Museum of Old and New Art, and so it's a bit of culture there. Right. <laughs> it's got all the resources of a city. It's nice. It's pretty cool. I mean, uh, so they sponsored you because of the engineering. Like, is that was your education something that? Exactly. Yeah. They it's, said, yeah, we want. Yeah, it's quite difficult, I think, especially for an American to immigrate to sure. Australia. Uh, but because engineering is a skill they look for. But actually, if you're a hairdresser, you would get more points for the immigration. Um, and so and so I needed a few extra points. And, and most people so you took up hairdressing for a little while. <laughs> well, I thought about it because <laughs> I really liked Australia. But uh, but basically, uh, you know, most people will move to Sydney and they, they and so the other states are competing a little bit for the immigrants. And so they gave that extra few points. They put me over the the point limit for the immigration. Right. And I was able to get my permanent residency. Uh huh. So let's go back a little bit further to, to your climbing career uh, before that. How, how old are you? I'm uh, 57 now. Okay. And uh, you don't look 57. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> Australia keeps you young. So tell me a little bit about your origins with, with climbing. Okay. Uh, because to just to kind of frame my experience with you, and, and I think a lot of people who, who know your name associated with big wall climbing, for sure, um, with A5, the company that um, then became a part of North Face for a while. In that era, you were just saying to me, the late 80s, early 90s was kind of your big wall heyday. And 92, the Trango Tower, and we'll get to that sort of stuff. So go back a little bit further than that to who you were as a kid and, and how you got into climbing to begin with. Sounds good. Yeah, I think as a kid, I was very, uh, I was really terrible at all the team sports that we were expected to do as kids, and I actually got into single, uh, single sculling. Okay. And where uh, were you? Where did you grow up? I grew up in the East Coast. Okay. Uh, this was in Washington D.C. area, and so I was really interested in sculling. It was an independent sport, and uh, I loved it. Just rowing on the rowing on the Potomac River there. But when I was fourteen, my my mom, I was actually starting to get in a bit of trouble too in the summers. You know, long school breaks and uh, just starting to like delve into the things that teenagers can get into. And my mom heard from a friend, her cousin actually, uh, that the Telluride Mountaineering School was a good place to sort of straighten up this, these kids who were getting into trouble. So, so I went to this uh, summer program in Telluride, the Telluride Mountaineering School, and Henry Barber was one of my instructors actually. Uh, and and it, during this 35-day program, we do all sorts of things, like a lot of five- or seven-day backpacks. And climbing was a component of that, mm-hmm. of that program. Uh, and that's when Henry would show up for that week. And, uh, and, and I just found climbing was something that I naturally took to. I actually just loved the balance of it and the, the scrambling around and being outside. And, and it became my passion, really. Mm-hmm. And then, so I went to that summer program every summer. But other than that, I really didn't do too much climbing until I met a good friend of mine, John Ely. And he was really interested in doing 
going to Yosemite and doing these things. And so, so we borrowed a car when we were 17 years old, and we drove out to Yosemite. And, uh, and when, once I saw the walls of Yosemite, I just knew that's what I wanted to do. Just at that point, I was like, well, that's the ultimate, climbing these long, giant faces of, of rock. Uh, and so during that trip, we were there for about two and a half weeks, and we climbed... Uh, East Buttress of El Cap, and we climbed uh, Washington Column, mm-hmm. and we climbed Half Dome, and we were, wow. we, we were nice, quite nice. Uh, that's a pretty good, good resume <laughs> for your first trip to Yosemite. Yeah, and this is what we're talking about: early seventies, mid seventies. This was seventy-seven. Okay, so right on. And you know, we were pretty young. I was six. Yeah, uh, but even so, you know, we were pretty young because, of course, the Yosemite was full of like the the hardcore climbers and Yosemite rescue team and all those people that we all are like, whoa, look at those guys. But um, but you know, we just did our own thing and, and pulled off a wall and. And after that, I knew I was bitten by wall climbing. That's, yeah. that's really what I was training for, what I was thinking about. Like, how, how can I... So whenever I was at a, at a crag climbing, free climbing, I would always be thinking, like, how this would be if I was, like, 1,000 feet up or 2,000 feet up. Um, and then, of course, you know, I, I went to high school, and, and my climbing was sporadic throughout those years. But, and then I went to Stanford for engineering mm-hmm. and graduated from that in 1983, and I was pretty much planning to get an engineering job. That was during those Reagan years, and really what I studied at, at Stanford was solar engineering, windmills, and I was really interested in the alternative energy aspect of engineering, but during those Reagan years, all the jobs were in military. Okay. You know, that's what... For engineers. For yeah. engineers, yeah. And so I had one job offer with Motorola where I was going to design a box for two years. It was the box for the F- F-16 or f 15 computer system and I was really almost about ready to take that job uh, but I actually I was I had a motorcycle at the time a, a BMW R60 slash 5 and I, and I did a final little tour around uh, California and then I was uh, just stopped off to Yosemite one last time to before, before you like went, before you went to jail, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Before you went into the into the cubicle for good, and I had actually sold <laughs> all my climbing gear. I, all my climbing gear, I had sold it, and everything I had was fit in my panniers of my BMW. But I did have some climbing shoes and a chalk bag and a, and a two inch Swami belt. And I, I met Warner Warner Braun uh-huh. in Yosemite, and he started to uh, he was, let's go climbing, man, and uh, just out of the blue, and I I climbed with Warner. And he mentioned that there's a spot on the rescue team opening up. And so the next day I went over to see John Dill in the, in the SAR cache in Yosemite. And I got on the rescue team. And then I lived in Yosemite for the next four years. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> and uh, during that time, you know, I basically just was able to really just delve into that wall climbing and, uh, and do a nose in a day. You know, like all the, all the opportunities that those big walls offered, I, I was really getting into. Like in the early 80s. Yeah, early yeah. 80s. This would be 84 to 87 or 88 where I right. lived so, there I full mean, time. We're talking about, I mean, who are the giants? In the, I mean, the bird's still around. Yeah, he Bale's would show up. still around. Yeah, yeah. All those guys. Yeah, Ron Kauk, of course, and uh, Backer. You know, I actually climbed a lot mm-hmm. with John Backer during those years. And, uh, and, but wall climbing was sort of at a lull at that point, I would say. Right. Like people, it was all about free climbing and, and not long free climbing, but just like hard routes that were done traditional, like ground up routes in Tuolumne and Yosemite. That was sort of the main game. Yeah, like the 80s is like, a, 
I feel like sometimes it's this like forgotten kind of decade because it feels like there was this transition or, you know, a lot of things were germinating versus like yeah. happening necessarily. I feel that too. I feel like so it's really been a forgotten era. I think a lot of it is because, you know, the 60s and 70s was historic and people and there were great photographers who, who documented some of that. And then, of course, in the late uh, 80s and 90s, you know, video became like a standard way to capture things. But there's like, I can't remember only a couple people who actually had a camera back in those days. You right. know, we weren't really thinking about like um, presenting this. But I, I agree. I think the 80s was an era where a lot of those, a lot of the things that have now become like very classic mainstream, like even slacklining and doing roots fast and hard aid and uh you know free climbing on walls all those things were we were playing with a lot i think that that era really sort of pushed pushed that all those things that today are considered you know the the the, the highest um, level of climbing you know they 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 started in the 80s really because the 70s i think was like a time of Perfected, you know, Hard Aid, Bridwell doing Sea of Dreams, and um, and also you know Dale Bard and Cowk and Backer, you know, f- pushing free climbing and soloing, but you know the the things of things related to big walls, you know, even even uh, you know just hard free climbing and moving fast on walls, that was all starting around sure. that time. Well, and also they were <clears throat> they were figuring out this this ethic of losing the yo-yoing and, and, and the hang-dogging, which had been this, this you know, pariah-creating method. Absolutely, yeah. Had, you know, they had started to, like, figure out that, wow, this could really help us climb these things. Not at <laughs> all. I mean, but not in, these, not in the valley. I mean, the right. valley was the holdout, of course. You know, we, right. the valley was accused of, like, being uh, a lot of, you know, laggards in the climbing community with the Jeff Smoot article of the valley syndrome. And, you know, he wrote the valley syndrome and inferred that the valley was really just a dead place. Nobody was really doing anything. But at the same time, uh, you know, the, the numbers might not have been the greatest. But mm-hmm. but there was really among the group I was with, like Schultz, Dave Schultz and Scott Cosgrove. And, um, it, you know, just these, these people who were just there to climb all right. the time. I mean, you know, the, the traditional ground up, you know, don't pre-inspect. If you fall, you immediately lower down. It was like a kind of a pure ethic that we all felt very strongly about, I guess, Mm -hmm. because uh, it it was about like how you would, like if you were on a mountain somewhere, you know, you're not going to necessarily have the chance to pre-inspect and do all that. You just needed to have those skills to be start at the bottom and get to the top. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's sort of where that traditional ethic uh, was strong in terms of like building your skills. So when you were in a situation where you had to like do or die, you could do it. Right. Rather, you know, so the practicing aspect was frowned upon, I guess. And of course, there was in the, in the mid to late 80s, of course, there was that conflict, you know, between the the uh, spokespersons for each side of right, right. Uh, but you know that was after I was really there full time when I was there it was just everybody was happy with that ethic and there wasn't any sort yeah, the of early 80s, yeah yeah so you were there like up to about eighty seven eighty seven right yeah right right and eighty eight is when it started to go a little bit um, haywire you know with the the different ethics clashing in the well yeah and then you had i mean then you had todd and paul come in and yeah and were and working the salathe which absolutely I'm yeah sure didn't make 
the other side very happy in terms of their ethic up there and working a route as well, big as that? You know, people, you know, I think sometimes people, you know, people, even today, I think people are like, oh, yeah, you guys were just really not friendly to these people. But actually, I, I don't remember that, you know. Okay. I remember actually being, you know, I, I knew Todd and we, were, we hung out and we'd drink in the bar and sometimes or just hang out at the uh, deli or something. But, um, you know, I don't really... There were a few people, I think, that were antagonistic mm-hmm. towards the people who weren't climbing that style. But most of the right. most of the people were just like, cool, you know. But of course, you know, we always felt like Mark Hudon and Max Jones's effort on the South A was like the, the real pure way, you know, because sure. they, they kind of just went up and, and did it uh, in that traditional style, I guess. Yeah, where... and, and, and I think I've mentioned this on, on the show before and... and always wanted I've, I've been dying to get those guys on together oh yeah but I, it hasn't happened uh-huh. i've hung out with both of them separately and one of these days i'm just gonna have to like buy them plane tickets and get them <laughs> in the same room because that era too and what happened with those guys and i think it was 79 78 79 yeah they wrote that article a state of the art yeah part of the state they just ground up try to do the south day and and uh you know to where it was a few meters of it in a few different places. That exactly, they did yeah. Free. Yeah, probably 100 feet or so, yeah. I'd say. But yeah, I mean, an incredible effort, way ahead of its time. Exactly, you know, yeah. In, in the ethic you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I, I definitely, once again, you know, shout out to those guys and try to get them on the show one of these days. But um, so let's talk a little bit about the, well, actually, I have a question back, going back a little ways to what we were talking about. So you're an engineer now. Mm-hmm. You know, you went to Stanford. You've got this brain for engineering. Uh, we joked about how you, you were just talking earlier about how you, you ended up taking care of your kids kind of on your own because your wife was, was in bed after surgery and you realized you could like clean up some of the systems in the house. <laughs> yeah. even. So like you've got this brain that, that deals with things engineering-wise. You found this climbing thing. What was it in your personality that was that almost made you like stick to the path of of the the job building the box in the lab at wherever I don't know who built the F fifteen? Well, it was really just financial, really, right, you know, because okay. actually my folks supported me through college. But as when I when I went to the valley, they basically said, "Okay, you know, you, you're done with college. We've we've supported you enough," and uh, and so. You know, getting the job was really just a way to to make a living. Okay. But I was able to find a living in Yosemite. You know, right. we worked on rescues. We probably made three or four thousand dollars a year on rescues, and uh, and then we'd actually get film jobs. And so it was a comfortable living. A lot of times, I would be, you know, rice would be the only thing for dinner. But uh, but yeah, I mean, the only thing that attracted me to building a box for an F sixteen for two years was um, was really the. The, you know, making a living, really, I okay. guess. But otherwise, I, I found the dirtbag lifestyle and uh, just delved into that full time. Yeah. So, I mean, it's got to be one of those. I mean, you, you were able to explain it precisely enough that I feel like you have to think about it these days as yeah. like a really pivotal moment in your life. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was I, I, mean, I felt like I was letting my parents down, you know, because they I understand. Yeah. And, and they totally. and they actually were very critical of being, you know, having this dirtbag lifestyle. Now, in the 90s, when climbing became like mainstream, my dad was like, why are you still doing that? You know, you could still be, uh, uh, you know, you could be making a living doing that. But, um, you know, at the time, they just considered it. I was just 
living in the dirt. You know, they didn't really understand yeah, climbing. for sure from the East Coast, too. Like, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. like you call your mom up. Yeah, mom, I just did Nose of the Day. And, in uh, you know, t- in 10 hours, 45, it's a new record. And, oh, that's nice, dear. Yeah, <laughs> no concept of right. what we're doing out and there. you but. live in a tent still? Okay, <laughs> yeah. well, call me back. Um, that was kind of fun. The first year, I, I actually had this old Jansport tent that was quite worn out. And the first winter I lived in Yosemite, uh, we were in the rescue site. And it snowed quite a bit, and there was a constant puddle in my tent, an icy puddle. And I slept in a puddle for all winter long in <laughs> that first winter in Yosemite. But you know, for me, it was all about now. I was training. Mm-hmm. You know, this was okay. this was my training. Right. I, I, I was going to say, couldn't you have engineered your way out of that puddle? Well, I but... I, I kind of saw an opportunity right. to like increase my suffering, so I was going to be more prepared for the <laughs> for the things to come. <laughs> How'd that work out? Pretty <laughs> that good. was great. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I I mastered. <laughs> Suffering you think for back a while. to the puddle and you're like, this is no big deal. I can't do it now, but yeah, <laughs> um, so the engineering thing is is an interesting part of this um, sort of picking your brain. So obviously, at some point in the '80s, in this time uh, when you're on SAR and you're you're doing these big walls, how is it that you start thinking about? gear what needs to be done Mm -hmm. manufacturing your own gear because eventually you know you come into starting this this company called a5 yeah i believe you said you started 86 or 87 yeah 86 really okay Uh, so yeah talk about like again you're you're using this brain and and looking around and and maybe seeing deficiencies in gear and what you guys need and well i consider climbing like uh, three facets of climbing there's skill there's technique and there's equipment. Mm-hmm. And, and when I say technique, I mean the technique of using the equipment. To So skill would just be, I mean, the purest example of skill, of course, is Alex's latest um, solo. I mean, that's just like, he's just used so much skill. Now, to get there, he used equipment and he used technique, you know. But he proved that just pure skill can do it. You know, right. climb the most iconic wall in the world. Right, the, the equipment being his, his shoes, yeah. essentially. Yeah, Which are still an important piece of equipment. Yeah, and maybe he'll uh, climb barefoot someday <laughs> or somebody. But um, I would say, uh, so, so the first step for me was actually, you know, the, the only text on, as I say, in the, in the early 80s, wall climbing was out of style. There was a few aficionados who, who loved it. You know, and Corbett was like the top dog. He had climbed 30 El Cap routes, which was a huge amount back then. And, um, but you know, there's like Rich Al Bushcat. There was this, we were oddballs, you know, the ones who really wanted to go back up on these aid walls that had all been done in the 60s and 70s and doing new routes and all that. But the, the, the only text on wall climbing back then was, advanced rock craft really that was the only information that you had on like learning how to walk on and that must have been like circa 70 60 68 or something all right you know? okay yeah so yeah so we're a little totally bit behind outdated. the times yeah and so the first thing i actually a lot of prussics in that book I'm yeah sure. yeah well they had, there was a picture of a jumar you know that they they just come from the swiss uh, birding community uh and were being used for wall climbing that was a big innovation but um so, so the first thing I got my mind around was just how to to document really all these techniques that wall climbers were using, and I, and you know I invented a few new ones like how to lower out from a sling. Uh, maybe it wasn't my invention, but you know it sort of documented it. And so there was all these techniques that were enabling wall climbs to go faster and more efficiently. Basically, mm-hmm. how you haul, you know, you can haul with a tagline and haul two loads and how you arrange your two haul bags, for example. So all these techniques. So that's the first thing really that 
sort of captured my engineering brain, if right. that's what you're asking. Yeah, because I was really like, how do you, how do you transfer this, this sort of experience and knowledge, collective knowledge? You know, it was all, I mean, there's Walt Shipley, you know, who's really quite a good engineer. And, and um, you know, so we're just trying to think about how we could explain these techniques. And, uh, and so I wrote this uh, couple articles for climbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, like issue 99 and 100 on how to wall climb, and that turned into what's called the, the Big Wall Tech Manual. And, th- and that uh, sort of was the first uh, modern, you know, at the time, modern way of how wall climbing was done, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that was like quite an engineering process, I think, just to break it all down and sure. between gear and techniques and how you, how you can use these tools to efficiently climb big walls. Uh, but again, you know, so that was the era where wall climbing was out of fashion. There was no tools being produced. So, you know, Black Diamond, or Chenard, of course, it was Chenard back then. They used to produce the best wall climbing hammer, the Chenard hammer. But they weren't making that anymore. And so there's really no hammer available for wall climbing. And, of course, you know, to do a hard nailing route, you need to have a good hammer. And so my first product was the big A5 big wall hammer. And I got that forged, that Ajax forged, the same place where I found out later that Chenard was using for his hammers, you know, 20 years before. And, uh, and so I made this new hammer. And at A5 started actually as a retail business just supplying these hard-to-find items, like, I mean, drilling equipment and, like, a little hand drill that you could bolt onto the bumper of your car and sharpen your drills. And and so I just found all these various gloves for wall climbing, and we'd modify a few items to make it... So just really creating a supply for wall climbers of things that were very hard to find. Mm -hmm. And then, um, but after about a year of that, I realized, like, well, it's new tools that, that could help. And, of course, I'd been rescued off Half Dome in 1986. Uh, and, and the reason we, we got in such trouble up there on the south face of Half Dome was because the portal edges of the day were made of, like, light whip. The flies were made of light ripstop nylon, and the frames were one-inch tubing. They didn't really have solid corner joints. And uh, in the storm, we got hit by... You know, massive storm. It was one of Yosemite's worst recorded storms, actually. Who's, who's up there with you? Corbett, Mike Corbett oh, okay. and Steve Bosky. Okay. So we started out in nice weather and, uh, you know, the predicted nice weather, but then the storm came in. And in, the, in that little Yosemite Valley, of course, you have a Venturi effect. So the storm came in and it was just howling winds. And, um, and because the wall is slightly less than vertical, all the rain just turned into a, basically a one-foot-thick waterfall. And it basically just came right through the flies of the portal edges. And we got completely soaked as if we had just jumped into the river. Then the first night, the temperatures dropped below freezing, so everything turned into solid ice. Our ropes were blocks of ice that we couldn't repel with. Uh, so we were trapped. And, uh, and the second day and night, the portal edges fell apart. And so, of course... Um, you know, this planted a seed of like designing yeah, the better portal. I mean, that's really like, yeah, you're like, these portal edges suck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And if I live through this, I'm going to build a portal edge that works. Yeah. Is that basically what's going on? Well, I think like, it, it, it took me a little while to realize, you know, because at the time, you know, it was all considered state of the art. This mm-hmm. is the most modern gear, but, but, but yeah, I think uh, after I built the hammer, I was like, well, now it's time to really start building a better portal. So what did you guys have to get high lined off and the whole, yeah, 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 we, we, it's quite a, 
be. Is that what it's called, Highline? Well, the helicopter from the more naval base came in. Okay. And it turns out, like, the technology, if we had been on that wall a couple years before, the technology wasn't there for that helicopter to, to come you out of there. hover so close in those winds because it was still, we got rescued in a lull between two major storms. And, uh, and it was, so it was quite windy, and but they just developed a new gyro system for helicopters. The Navy had, and uh, and this enabled the helicopter to hover close, you know, solidly enough to lower a guy. And they throw a uh, horse collar over your under your armpits and this pluck just you off the wall. Zip, yeah. Zip you off. yeah, one at a time. And uh, and of course, when the helicopter came, the the wall was solid ice, like for a thousand feet above us. Uh, I mean, real, four or five inches of solid ice. And when the helicopter came, that the 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 helicopter caused out these massive avalanches to smash down on us, and we we had lots of uh, you know softball sized chunks of ice just smashing oh, yeah. us. For uh, felt like you know, you're in. A, batting cage with a pro batter right. <laughs> so I mean totally lucky to be alive yeah I mean, it was that close oh absolutely yeah, yeah. if we if, if they hadn't been able to pull us off we would there's no way we would have survived right. the next storm that came in that night situation three frozen bodies yeah. to the wall and the, and the rescue was amazing you know there was like 30 people from camp four who were trying to hike up to the top of half dome but well, that's covered in ice it's yeah. completely inaccessible so they they were stopped at the you know they couldn't get past the cables up there wow. uh, but it was a major effort and we were so grateful right yeah. so you come down and and now it's time to this germ in your brain of, of the gear. So continue with that. Yeah, so actually, uh, that sort of, at the time, I was very confident of my skills, but that being rescued on Half Dome really set me back, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I almost uh, lost a bit of enthusiasm for wall climbing. I did, actually. I didn't do another wall until 1989. Okay. Uh, and so that's when I went to Flagstaff, Arizona, and started the retail A5 and then started developing the new portal edge. Uh, with Kyle Copeland, he came into the business and he had a lot of sewing skills. And, uh, and, so, and so I engineered the frame and he engineered the uh, fabric bits. And uh, we basically made, you know, our first generations were stronger and had a heavier duty fly material. But, but that whole process basically took about 10 years, I'd say. You know, mm-hmm. we, the first ones were good. They, they were much better than what was there before. But it wasn't until about um, 1991, I would say, we produced the first truly stormproof portal edge. Right. You know, that could withstand any conditions you're going to find, any wall in the world. Uh, and so the A5 was definitely, you know, like becoming a tool. The A5 portal edge was definitely becoming a tool that you could now survive any kind of storm. Right. And uh, my, I, I felt I really... I felt that was really accomplished when I climbed a wall. We climbed Tribal Right, Steve Quinlan and I, mm-hmm. in 1991. And uh, we started up in bad weather. And that's over on the right side? Yeah, right? just to the right oh, of like the nose. And, and that's the, yeah. Oh, no. Oh, it's right in there. Yeah, we started up. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah, we started up actually the, the, you know, the right side of El Cap Tower, and mm-hmm. then we continued on Tribal Right. We started up in bad weather because we both had limited time frames. And every day we got hit by a pretty good storm. You know, nobody else was on our cops that whole week. Uh, but this portal edge we had was 
we were able to survive. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and that's when I knew, like, okay, now this can be taken anywhere in the world and you could survive. Right. Because at that time, you know, big, most of the big walls that had been b- being done in remote places were done with fixed ropes. Okay. Like most of the routes, I mean, all the, you know, what you would call a real true wall route in Patagonia, for example, were all done with fixed ropes up to, you know, in the eight, 70s and 80s. And um, what about that? Uh, what about that Willens thing? The Willens box. Yeah, the Willens box. Yeah, that was more of a base camp tool, oh, okay. really, because they they only used that weighed about 100 pounds, I think, right. and they only used that for for like. I mean, I think they did haul it up a bit, but it, okay, yeah, it wasn't a portable right. item, and it took quite a long time to set up, I yeah. think. Uh, and and you know, Lowe, of course, had experimented with a portal edge. Um, low equipment but they they were never commercially for sale for example mm-hmm. you know so we there was tantalizing bits of like like technology that would enable survival on these big routes but but I, I, there was nothing really available until you know the say five I, I would say um, and that and that actually resulted in a huge boom I would say through the 90s and standards and remote big walls because now for the first time like all these routes were being done in what we call a big wall alpine style mm-hmm. where you leave the ground and you, there's no it's a much more committing style of course because if, with fixed ropes you can always go back to base camp but once you get up you know, four or five pitches without fixed ropes to the ground you're really committed sure. as you know you know it's, it's quite an involved process to get back to the ground so so the big wall alpine style where you leave the ground uh and don't go back is a much more committing style, but it's a more aesthetic style, I would say, of big walls. You can actually do walls more efficiently in a way. You know, uh-huh. you're not spending months, you know, fixing ropes and coming down. And uh, so, and that was so that really there was a big boom in standards. I'd say in the '90s, you know, mm-hmm. like the of course in the Great Great Triangle and the North Face of of uh, Triangle Tower and um, uh, a Scudo in Patagonia. You know, these were these were all like pioneering routes where people were climbing uh, in big wall alpine style without fixed ropes. And right. It was kind of, a, it was new in that sense. You know. So, so the 90s, 91, when did you say you thought your, your ledge was like ready to Yeah, I would say after we did tribal right. Yeah. And what it, year was that? That was 1991. Yeah. yeah. So, and then, you know, that's actually about the era that I started myself started aid climbing in Colorado. Um, and we, my reasoning had more to do with this reverence for, for the past. Uh-huh. I have joked about, you know, how everybody all, everybody was wearing Lycra and we were like trying to find wool knickers and, and thrift stores and yeah. stuff. But anyway, so, but, it, but it also is, you know, you wonder how you got influenced to do one thing or another. And so definitely there's this feeling that there was a resurgence of wall climbing definitely yeah. in the early nineties. How much of it was organic and what do you think about like this this opportunity with these ledges because you know i remember the big there's two 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 guys there was you a5 and there was fish yeah and you know making the ballistic haul bags making the proper ledges that that could survive storms probably playing off each other's designs as, as as it goes but there was enough wall climbing to go on to sustain at least on a small level, these two companies that were, were making big wall gear. Mm-hmm. So do you think it was already like moving there or the gear brought it there? We're, we're, I mean, just a feeling of the kind of, again, this nexus of these moments. Exactly. Well, I, you know, I wrote this article for Ascent with Steve Roper and, uh, it, it, in the 90s. And the premise of the article is that 
innovation precedes jumps in human standards. Right. So I, I, I go back to like, you know, 1492 when uh, they were sieging uh, Mount Aguil in Europe uh, and they were just purely showing their technical prowess of being able to siege a castle. And then, and then you know, it goes throughout the the 1800s and 1900s. And, you know, what you see is that um, throughout history, all these achievements in climbing were always preceded by a jump in the technology. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the Iger, for example, you know, the Iger had been climbed or been attempted many times uh, in the 30s. But it wasn't until the front point crampons made by Greville that, uh, that, that it really became more possible, I guess right. you could say. So, and then, of course, you know, friends, for example, you know, they, they came in and people were resisting them at first, but of course they've, they've resulted in a huge jump in standards. And so I consider the portal edge as part of that too. Uh, having a portal edge that for the first time you can survive any kind of conditions, you know, enabled a lot of climbers to fulfill these dreams that they might've had, but now they have the tool to actually do it. So, so, uh, you know, I, I would say that uh, the confidence that you would have in having a portal edge that you could survive and spend three or four nights in a big storm enabled, like, a lot of climbers to just push standards, really. Right. And, and do the, yeah, get up there for forever. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. What they can survive the, now. What was the uh, uh, Mark Sinat, uh, the great and secret show? Exactly, yeah. I mean, those, Amazing what route. was that, like 30-some days, 40 yeah. days or something like that? Yeah. In their portal edge? Yeah, 4,200-foot wall. And, yeah. In Baffin Island. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's directly related. Exactly. In a, a severe environment like that. Well, Baffin is like, it's actually, Baffin is like, actually fairly good weather. Right. I've been it's up there cold. a few trips, and it's right. cold, and because the storms move in a bit slow, and then, the, then it's snowing. You know, you're not getting wet. Right. And so, actually, Baffin is fairly gentle if you can handle cold. Um Patagonia, on the other hand, you know, those winds drive you crazy. You know, you can't survive. The human psyche can't survive in high winds for days and days. So flapping, having, flapping ripstop. Yeah. Like it'll eventually push you over the edge. Exactly. And then, of course, in the Karakoram, you know, you have serious conditions, you know, that are just crazy storms. So well, let, let, let's go back to that. You just kind of, you just threw it out there quickly a moment ago, the Great Triangle Tower in 1992 mm -hmm. with uh, Xavier Bongard. Yes. Is that how you pronounce his last well, name? Well, Xavier Bongard. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Xavier. Xavier. So X-A-V-E-R. People sometimes put an I in there, but it's right. just the... So <laughs> um, you got, I mean, in 1991, you said you did travel right in a storm yeah. and were, was sort of a proving ground. Was that like you know, a conscious, Hey, why don't we go and really put this stuff to the test? Or did it, um, or did it just happen to be, you know, a next step? Oh, no, what it was, was it mind? was, it was really fortunate series of events for me because, um, I, I'd, I'd met Xavier and, mm -hmm. uh, in Yosemite and he was into soloing. So he, he, he knew I had some ex wall experience and he came up to me and he goes, John, you know, what's the hardest wall on no cap? And I said, well, you know, when, you know, what's the hardest wall that hasn't been soloed? Well, it's Sea of Dreams hasn't right. been soloed. So he went and fired off the first of that. Then, then the next year he came back from Switzerland and he said, what's, now I need another hard one. Jolly Roger would be 
press a solo and so he solos that and then <laughs> and then the third year he, he goes what's next you know and I'm, I think I you're like you're done you're out you've run out of hard roots <laughs> oh, I said uh, uh, sheep ranch you know so oh, right the so, sheep ranch so he started soloing the sheep ranch and about five pitches up he, he's like John I'm so tired of soloing and this was in 1989 right I know the feeling yeah <laughs> and I actually had come back to the Yosemite in 1989 and I really wasn't expecting to climb walls I was I was now making gear and just come back to free climb and maybe do nose in a day kind of things um and then walt shipley had been working on a new route on half dome and he was getting burned out um and so we actually did the first ascent of the cali yuga on half dome and this was the first wall i'd done for four years and i was on the same wall you know oh right half dome. The rescue happened. yeah but we were on the south face when the rescue happened but now i'm on the north face which is even more you know shadowy and cold and more exposed and storms and um, of course, you don't have those slabs ahead of you, which caused a lot of problems. But, um, but yeah, so I, I, we did that in seven days. And then I got down from that, and Xavier was like, let's go climbing, you know. So we ended up doing the third ascent of the Sheep Ranch together. And we climbed a new variation through the Cyclops Eye roof, which was quite wild. Um, and that was a great, you know, bonding. We just were a really good team. Mm-hmm. Well, the next year, uh, or a couple years later, he... Um, he was organizing a trip to Great Triangle Tower, and he had four Swiss climbers. I mean, there was a team of four that were going to Great Triangle Tower. And one of, one of the team members actually broke his leg right before the trip. And Xavier said, hey, do you want to come? You know, this was uh, three or four months before the trip. He said, do you want to come on our trip? And I was just like, yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, this sounds great. So he had it all organized. They had the permit. And so we went over there as a team of four. And, uh, and, and of course, Xavier knew we, could, we, we climbed well together. And I would say uh, we were a good team. He was he was definitely a bolder climber. Mm-hmm. But I think I had a bit more experience in 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 the engineering aspect. You know, sure. like the mapping of the route and deciding where to go and how we're going to strategize with the amount of gear and you know what we're going to how we're going to. I mean, it sounds like a perfect team. Yeah, then. we were really perfect. Yeah. I mean, we were just always synced up and just laughing all the time. His. Yeah, he was famous for being a bit crazy. And, yeah. and I'll say this because people don't know this. We're, we are using the past tense because Xavier's not, no longer with us. No, he died. Xavier. Ba- base jumping. Yeah, base jumping accident. Early, mm-hmm. early base jumper. So, yeah. Um, which is terrible, but um, I just wanted to clarify that. that uh, not long. When, 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 I think 94 is when he, okay. he so, in the Staubach, he, he Yeah, was, I remember even, because again, I'm now really into wall climbing and, and remember just like ugh, how shocking and the, you know, he was just flamboyant and, mm-hmm. and always like crazy clothes and glasses. And obviously even on that tower, I mean, you guys look like you were just kind of having a good time up there. So. Oh, he loved to have fun. Yeah. So anyway, back to the, back to the climb. I just wanted to clarify that. Uh, yeah. So, so when we got there, we were a team of four, as I mentioned, but the two other Swiss climbers realized it was this, this route we were picking out on the great Trango was a bit more than they wanted to do. So they went off and, and worked on a route on Trango tower, the, mm-hmm. formerly called nameless. Uh, and Zavard and I basically, made the plans to do this route and we spent a couple weeks just prepping it just getting all our gear up to the base just getting up to the base was a quite a challenging um it's a very dangerous gully you have to climb up and you can only climb it at night of course because it was avalanching during the day all day and uh and uh yeah i mean it was just really one pitch at a time there was a moment there where we had fixed a rope and we were blasting 
uh, Xavier was actually at the top of the first pitch, and I was coming up the rope. I was you know, going to be leading the second pitch. And uh, these two blocks the size of school buses came off right at that moment, right above us, off this huge eyebrow uh, flake. And they came down, and, and they were coming down from about 3,000 feet above us. And so, of course, that's about 8 to 10 seconds of time. And they're just sort of... And, and, you know, when you look up at a rock coming down, if it doesn't seem like it's moving left or right, you know it's coming down for you. And this thing just kept getting bigger and bigger, and it was sort of slowly twisting. And uh, and we basically thought we were goners. We were just like, this is it. So terrifying. And we just huddled as close as we could. Xavier said in his article about it, we made ourselves small underneath our helmets. Right. <laughs> and, uh, like a helmet would have helped. But because, <laughs> exactly, yeah. But because this wall overhung so much, the first 2,000 feet, the, the, these things fell about 30 or 40 feet behind us, directly uh-huh. in line with us, though. And they hit the glacier, and there was this huge two-minute snow, mini snowstorm blizzard from the from the from the rocks hitting the glacier and uh and there was a moment there where we looked at each other and we're like are we really going to do this and i i just started coming up yep let's not think about that and uh, we kept going and we spent uh, 15 days on that climb climbing up to the summit and um, and then three days descending right and th- that was like i, I think i remember Again, following that or knowing about it, you didn't follow it because it wasn't internet days. You just read about it months later in the magazines. But that was kind of uh, the the real like advanced use of the capsule style. Exactly. Yeah. This idea of moving a base camp, fixing ropes. Yeah. And uh, guys, you guys were like inventing a lot of things on this because here you are walk, being able to walk to the base L cap. And whatever, three minutes, however it's long. Well, with a haul bag, it's yeah. a little longer. But And then, you know, half dub's a little bit of a push. But, you know, this idea of before you even get to the wall, you've got to do all this mountaineering. Exactly, yeah. With all this heavy equipment. Yeah, probably uh, TD plus, you know, in the European grade, the the ice climb. Because right. Ace Cavelli was, came up and he said it was one of the hardest you know, alpine climbs you'd ever done just to get to the base. Right. So you're, you know, this is all kind of, again, this new world. And, you know, we were talking about that Chouinard quote uh, about, you know, going into the great ranges. It's like, finally, it's happening in a sense, Well, with, at least with big wall climbing. Yeah, I don't think we, we pioneered it. I mean, of course, uh, Porter had climbed uh, Asgard mm-hmm. and, um, you know, there was definitely... Uh, amazing, and, and of course, tri- Trango had been climbed in that window because uh, Pakistan had been closed for all those years oh, in, right. in the eighties, of course. And but you know the 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 um, uh, Joe Brown and Poison Ascent of, of Nameless Tower, you know that was, I mean those those were sure. Those I mean everything's built on through. on the on the shoulders of yeah what's coming before. But, but. the reason you know the, uh, capsule style, I, I don't know. I, I like that term because it's not the same as the capsule style they use in the mountains. I call it big wall alpine style. But you know we had four ropes or five ropes, I guess. Uh, you know one of the ropes was three hundred feet. Um, but the the reason you have to have that technique is because it's just not not everywhere you can pivy safely. Mm-hmm. Greg Child actually had sent me a photo of that face on on Great Trango, and the, you just see the whole face avalanching. Sure. And he basically said, "There's no way that face will get climbed." Uh, now I had forgotten that that he had sent me that photo. He reminded me afterwards that he showed me this Good. photo before I went. I'm glad I forgot about it. <laughs> because there's a lot of places on that wall where you couldn't camp. 
Right. It's just too much exposure to the to to basically ice fall and rock fall coming down from from the cornice on top. That's why we needed the ability to fix two or three pitches ahead. But we never had fixed ropes to the ground. You know, once we were four pitches up, we would basically we were basically committed because mm-hmm. that whole first half is overhanging and it would be horrendous. In fact, we did repel it, but the the only way to get back down was we had to strategically leave pieces of parachute cord to connect sections so we could pull ourselves back in okay to get down you know and so that was that was again that was my job to keep those logistics uh alive so wait i don't get it so so on the way up you know sometimes we would we'd be going over such a steep overhanging section and we knew we were going to you know possibly repelling down the route so i would leave a piece of parachute cord from the inside of the overhang to to the outside so when we were wrapping down you know we there's no way we could have swung to the next the belay under the roof, so, uh-huh. so I was able to pull pull myself back in with a piece of parachute cord. Huh. So, so the but the whole idea is you know that was a safe place to bivy under a roof, of course, but the next pitch wasn't. So we had to be able to have the ability to fix a few pitches above each safe camp. And were you able to conceive of all this or most of it on the ground? Uh, in well, terms of your experience, or was like the parachute cord thing something you improvised up? There? Oh, improvising, yeah. I yeah. mean, that's the whole that's the whole game. That's right. The, that's the whole game of wall climbing, as you know. It's about like figuring things out on the spot. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I would say you know I had done the Atlantic Ocean Wall. I'd done a few new routes, and um, uh, and and the whole idea like we had. We didn't have a telescope in Pakistan, but we had good binoculars. And so, yeah, we spent a few weeks. I mean, I spent a few weeks going out there in different day, different light, you know, maybe in the evening looking at it from one angle and then the morning from another angle and just finding the features up there. So that's where my skill actually helped our process was just being able to map the route. Because, of course, when you're up there, there might be a good crack around the buttress, but you can't see it. So you have to refer to your map and go, oh, look, if we pendulum over this buttress, you know, we're going to get to another crack system. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I would say we didn't go exactly where I thought we were going to go, but uh, pretty pretty close. Pretty close, yeah. 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 And, and we found some unexpected dangers, too, like the Gollum's Gully, which was avalanching massively every every day and uh, got hit pretty hard there and we thought we had to retreat this is about halfway up but then we just climbed that section over two nights okay and fixed those ropes through it as quick as we could so you're climbing it's not just like a beautiful smooth nice el cap style wall you're going over big snowy ledges up through you know well, only once, gullies to get yeah. between the the sort of sweet, nice, steep, yeah. good nailing kind well, of stuff. Well, there's only one one ledge on that whole right. wall. You know, really, it's the snowy ledge like halfway up, and that was a luxury, really, being able to stand because n- there was nowhere else on that wall where there was ever really right. a ledge. Right. You know, like you find on Camp Six or in, on El Cap, there's never a place where we could just stand and organize gear. The whole thing was, uh, but yeah, that snowy ledge was really quite quite a nice. Has that relief. been uh, ever climbed again, or that wall climbed again? I don't think so. Yeah. I, don't, I know. I, I know a lot of teams have gone over there with the intention of doing a second ascent. But frankly, I mean, when you get over there, there's lots of potential for sure, new routes. Do do a new route. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, maybe someday, but. Uh, I want to also talk about you sort of moving on from wall climbing. But before we get there, we keep going back to this engineering theme because I think that that's a, like a big part of your legacy in the in 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 the sport 
is this the fact that you were not just a climber, you were creating the gear that you needed to climb. But and and, and also engineering, you know, I watched it too to a certain extent. Again, learning the old guy's standards and then I I actually climbed through this same era where you were you were literally producing equipment each year that was making it yeah I love that era that was actually quite a fun time because I I was probably tapering off in the 90s but you know like like you guys were just I was so excited to see climbing Mm -hmm. the big wall climbing sort of become interesting again and the engineering and the is such a big part of the a climbing and it makes it it's it's kind of this weird thing where in a way it makes it the word I'd, I, I I come to is easier, but it's also that's not quite correct because all it does is it it sort of let you get out there further. Exactly. Where for you and and what do you think it was about the mind part of it? And we talked we joked earlier about the aid rant, yeah. which I'm very famous for, Love it. <laughs> which was. A lot of people still to this day don't get that it was tongue in cheek. Okay. You know, um, I was drunk for sure. And, you know, it was just one of those things. But what part of your brain, we've talked about your engineering brain. What part of your brain was that useful? And, and was it something you cultivated to be able to be out there bouncing up and down on a hook? I guess there's two two ways to respond to that. One, one is like, yeah, I guess as a as an engineer, I like to see flow, and of course the best tools are transparent. You know, you don't even know you have them because they're just doing what they're supposed mm-hmm. to do. Yeah, the, the, I guess the engineering. I guess I was just always interested in the puzzle of it. Really, mm-hmm. you know, it's a puzzle. It's a, this mystery. When I started wall climbing. You, you know, the, after this uh, Yosemite thing, you know, the, the experienced wall climbers of the valley, they didn't really want to climb with a beginner. And, and so for me, it was just this mystery of like, how are they doing that? You know, how, how is that happening? And it was, I guess there was a bit of elitism in the Camp 4 scene, but because um, I never really felt like I could go up and approach the rescue team back in the 70s. And But to me, it was just this puzzle, I guess you could say, like, how can you do this, really? Uh and so, and I guess once I figured it out, I'd like to share it. Mm-hmm. So it was really about sharing the techniques with those articles. But really, I guess this goes back to the Chouinard quote of, um, you know, in 1963, he wrote about how Yosemite was the training ground for the super alpinists of the future to go out and climb in these remote ranges of the world. And, uh, and that, was always, that was always my mantra, you know, like everything I was doing in the Valley was just training for something future. And I was just so fortunate to have this opportunity to go with uh, Xavier because, uh, you know, I'm not sure if I was pretty busy with A5 at the time. And, and to me, I was like, now my role was to help other people do it, I guess you could say, in mm-hmm. the 90s. And I was sort of tapering off. And, and uh, but, um, you know, then I was able to tr- truly test all these theories that, you know, okay, we got the techniques, we've got the tools, and now and, you know now we're going to put it to the test, I guess. Right. Uh, so I'm trying to think how to answer your question. Yeah, so, there, so. To be honest with you, there may not be an answer yeah. because I've been asked the same thing. Yeah. And you know, I I kind of have this memory or this idea that somehow I kind of it was almost like a, a, a drone camera, like <laughs> an out of body thing where I'll, I'll, in all honesty, it was like, well, I'm up here, but you know, it's not really me or, exactly, yeah. or I'm a machine that's doing this thing back to this engineering thing where I've got all these techniques refined. And if I can just do the techniques in a machine like way, 
they're going to get me up this thing. So I'm going to bounce test and I'm going to do this and I'm going to, you know, everything's just right. The methodical aspect. Yeah. And if I can stay a computer brain, then, and I think, I mean, in a lot of ways, talking to Alex Honnold the same way, like computer brain tells me that I'm capable of this. So Mm -hmm. let's keep the, let's keep this ocean of emotions like Mm -hmm. nice and placid down in inside there. And, I don't know why I could do it. And, and my joke now, and, and we'll talk a little bit about the aid rant, you know, my joke now is that despite my, you know, bravado with that thing, if you, if you took me 46 year old Chris and just suddenly popped me into the middle of like, uh, see dreams. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, I think, uh, the last really hard wall I did was, was Gulfstream, mm-hmm. and, uh, which is part of a, you know, your route Atlantic or, um, yeah, gnarly yeah. route. Yeah. And so yeah. if you projected me into the middle of the, one of the hardest pitches on that, I'd lose my mind. Like I would lose my mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would probably go catatonic, you know, because whatever I had then is gone with age or with knowledge or with whatever else. But yeah. it was there, this ability to just be up there, just like, huh, huh. keep it together. Yeah. 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 But it's, it, it's, it's a very difficult and mysterious thing to delve into as to why I was able to do it. Cause I wasn't, I wasn't like a brooding wall rat kind of dude yeah. when I was on the ground. I, you know, so I don't know where it came from. Well, you know, I think, I think climbing's changed a bit. And one of the things that I think we were really doing a little bit differently in the eighties was, uh, you know, when you think of like the kind of crazy things like Walt Shipley was doing, I mean, I think, you know, for, for us, the challenge was to get as out there as possible and see if we could survive really, Mm -hmm. you know, so we were actually soloing at just like a letter grade below our limit sometimes. And, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, in different situations, but, um, you know, I think I think now climbing is much more controlled and more practiced and more, mm-hmm. you know, people realize like it's more of a almost like it's a, it's more of a performance art now mm-hmm. in, in a good way, though. You know, I mean, really, the ability to to perfect like difficult moves is really quite inspiring. But I think back then we we considered any sort of practice as um, as a bit. Well, that's not really helping us for that time when we're so out there and our mind's going crazy and we have to keep it together. You know, mm-hmm. like you're on that broken hold and you know, you're about to fall and the only thing you can do is lunge up to the next hold and latch it. And you know that if you don't make it, you're going to like take a you know, bone breaking fall and you just do it. You know, that's, so we were always looking for those situations okay. where we're kind of ex- pushing, you know, we wanted to find where the edge was, I guess you could say. And of course, you know, a lot, a lot of the, a lot of us, um, a lot of that group has not survived. You right. know, Derek Hersey and Walt Shipley and, uh, it, you know, it's, you can only get away with that, like find going to the very edge and seeing if you can survive so many times before the percentages catch up to you, I think. And, uh, and that's really what I realized when I was about mm-hmm. 33 is I said, well, you know, I'm seeing all my friends get killed. And, and really what's happening, I think, is, you know, you peak out about 33, 34 for this kind of thing, you know, in terms of endurance and strength and and uh, in your and reflexes. And I think, you know, a lot of the a lot of the deaths were ca- caused by just the mind being willing to do it, but necessarily the physical ability just being 99 percent and that one percent just you know, causes uh, tragedy, really. Uh, 
So you said on the way here that 93, 94 after the Triangle Tower, really good years. And then was there a tapering off? And was that in your mind of like, wow, I've, I've gotten away with a lot? Exactly. Yeah. When Xavier got killed, actually, that was really quite a pivotal moment for me because he and I had been training. I was actually getting into base jumping mm-hmm. and I was uh, oh, getting that's out, right. do, doing a lot of skydiving. And our plan was to go to Baffin and do the first time a wall would be climbed with the parachutes in the hall bag, climb up and use it as the descent vehicle like, okay so we were you know he he was ahead of the game but i was catching up in terms of learning how to base jump and uh, and that was our that was our plan we were going to go the next year to baffin and and climb uh, one of the big walls there uh, in the sam ford fjord I, this is i remember that i remember that you were will ox was that yeah will ox yeah, was right. my mentor sure yeah those, you know, all these wall climbers were suddenly yeah uh, thinking about base jumping yeah this is of course before there's custom base shoots mm-hmm. of course you just use modified or you know, you know, regular skydiving shoots with, with a reserve even. And uh, yeah, I remember my Will Ox took me under his wing and we convinced Darren Cope and Zion to take us up in his airplane. He'd just been getting his private license and we jumped out of his plane. You know, this is before I had a license or anything to to jump. But uh, yeah, so I was catching up and, I, and you know, going some bridges and things like that. And and then Xavier got killed in Stalback. And, and that just shut me down, really. I just, you know, I sold my parachute and I basically just realized, like, I didn't want to do that to the people around me, you know, like my family, really, you right. know. Because I think at that point, I really just felt like if I died, that would be that would be that's my decision you know i realized like after all my friends died that it really wasn't just that it, it was really big impact on the community around you and uh, and i think i've i felt that um i just needed to taper down mm-hmm. I, I wanted to survive right and 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 live long and uh well, it, so I basically kind of quit, right. you know, serious climbing, extreme right. climbing, where I was putting my life on the line, probably around 95, 96. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it's, an, it's interesting. You know, I didn't have, you know, a terrible tragedy like that happen to me necessarily, but I felt the same way. You know, for all the joking, again, about like, oh, A5 doesn't exist, it's all not that hard, which is in the aid rant. I mean, I, I was the same way, like, you know, I've gotten away with this, and yeah. I didn't go nearly as far as you did yeah. in terms of climbing. Well, but you know, climbing hard routes on El Cap, and yeah, I, I'm getting away with something here. And you know, maybe where do you go? Like once you climb stuff like Gulfstream and the Reticent Wall and these other routes, like you go to the Great Ranges. So was I willing to make that step? And you know, I, whether I'm lazy or what, I was like, no, I think we're good. I'll do this, and and again stay climbing but why don't i go and try to do some fun climbing where i'm not gripped all the time you yeah. know or well, whatever you know like, yeah it's just be interesting and just talk you know like obviously wall climbing has become really uh solid in the in the public guy you know now uh, with tommy caldwell's amazing ascent of the new dawn and you know to me like the most amazing thing about what tommy was doing up on that new dawn was not necessarily the, the technical free climbing, but the ability that he was being able to maneuver on this massive wall and find that line of free, free climbing. And, and that skill, that's the next skill, you know, the ability to, to move efficiently and, and fast 
and using all the, because it's it's quite challenging as you know in a wall to move maneuver if you're if you got five two hall bags and you're in a place you know you can't get over just 10 feet over very easily and so you know really what what he was doing up there was just this amazing maneuverability and that skill i think is going to be the next um, generation you know for the alpinists well and, and wall alpinists it's yeah and and you built so much of it literally mm-hmm you know, literally building equipment. Um, and it's, it's again, like the, the, my premise, and we talked about this earlier. Well, actually, and back to the aid rant, and if anybody hasn't seen it, I, I find it hard to believe because I think a lot of people know me from that before <laughs> this thing came, but it's a, it's a video where I spray for 10 minutes in Cochimo uh, with a, with a, a piscola <laughs> in my hand about how easy A climbing is. A5 doesn't exist because somebody has to die. And, but the truth was is that I, got, I did get this feeling, and it's, and it's kind of because of you in a way, Ooh. is that we had refined it, and you had refined it in a lot of ways because at the height of you know, mid-90s, 95, 96, like, to to this engineering science and it had gotten to where people were climbing the hardest routes on El Cap it, you know these former like fearsome fearsome routes no problem it was kind of like 514 now yeah. you know it's all of a sudden everybody seems like they climb 514 or these yeah. young people and it was the same way of like these things were just getting knocked down and knocked down yeah. again and again and i think it was because like it had reached this like such this utter refinement of how to do it, the gear, again, partially thanks to you, was, it just felt all of a sudden like, wow, this, is this really like that hard or are we just pretending it is anymore? Because stuff was just getting knocked, you know, you know, you were there, it was like, uh, an ascent of, of, of Sea of Dreams was like not even noteworthy anymore. You know? Yeah, but I think it's just like you said, I mean, if you or I were put on the, you know, crux pitch of the Gulf Stream right now, we, we would be completely out of our limit. But, you know, of course, you're building up to it. You know, you've got mm-hmm. your first pitch and you're climbing one piece at a time and, and you, you know, you, you, you merge into that state of uh, almost a Zen state of being able to, to technically ascend, you know, uh, in terms of aid climbing. But, uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's just, um, you know, builds. Everything builds mm-hmm. on, on, your, on your previous psyche and uh, just being able to get yourself you know, you're, it's sort of the Alice in Wonderland. You know, you're going through the <laughs> through the tunnel, and you you get there, mm-hmm. and you're just there doing it. And uh, so, yeah, I think the tools and the techniques help, but I mean, it's really the individual who's being able to sure. to like put themselves in that kind of situation where fear is needs to be understood and controlled, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and, and you know when that when that like, and, and that's why I, oh, just yeah. just to respond to yeah. your Adrian, right? Yeah, you know, I love that Adrian. It was so funny when I first saw it, and uh, and I've watched it many, many times, and uh, but you know, I guess I guess my my um, somber response would be, well, yeah, exactly that. You know, you, nobody's climbing a five without the prerequisite. You know, if, like if, if you were just thrown on a five, you would probably die. You know. <laughs> But you build, you know, and it's sort of like, I guess, the big waves, you know, no, no beginner surfer is even going to be able to get out in the ocean to do a big wave surf, you know, because they're just going to get munched on the, on the, on the rip going out. But, uh, you know, you, so, you, so the people who are, who are truly climbing like A4 plus and A5, you know, the, the only way, the only reason they, they get there is because they've already, you know, overcome a lot of other challenges. Well, yeah. And I, I see that in all climbing because, you know, 
like the Black Canyon. Ding. Mm-hmm. Uh, I say it all the time. That, but um, the you know, there's fearsome hard routes there, five twelves that are scary. Exactly. Five elevens that are super super scary. Yeah. But really, the accidents all happen on the easier routes down there. Yeah. You know, on because once you get to where you're climbing, you know those levels. Yeah, you're you're able to not fall. So mm-hmm. you know, you'd think the 511 plus rx pitches would be wiping people out but they never they almost literally never do and the rescues and everything are happening on journey home which is five nine or you know so again like i realized all this and the fact is is that when that became blew up Mm -hmm. and it was all of a sudden it was early internet like i was like "Ah, people hate me all of a sudden my only embarrassment I had from it was honestly like thinking of people like yourself, because I have like utmost respect for, for what you did for wall climbing, what you did as a wall climber. And I couldn't have done it without you. <laughs> Thank you. Because I mean, you were like two years before was your height in, in Yosemite. And I walked in and, and we were all standing, you know, on your equipment and using it. So there was some embarrassment of, in my mind of like, <laughs> well, God, I hope these guys realize that like I'm totally shitting and like. <laughs> I, I took that stuff seriously and like have the utmost respect for it. So I'm glad we're able to talk because my embarrassment of a handful of people out there going like, God, oh, what a little shit, you know? Like, <laughs> no, for me, I mean, I just love it whenever, like, you know, whenever the discussion is talking about, you know, that kind of technique. So for me, it was like, hey, you're, you're raising a good question. Well, here. and Let's also you it. knew that this was this was a common debate in the, even in those days of sitting in the meadow of what a four men, what, yeah. I mean, cause we, we all didn't really know. And that was kind of part of it too. Like you, you, you didn't know like what it really meant. Like just, Oh, it meant to hit a ledge. And another person said, no, it meant this. And yeah. so it was this really weird amorphous grading system anyway, exactly. that I'd been forced to explain right. to people over and over again. So that's kind of where the whole like spiel had come from. <laughs> I see. Anyhow. Um, huh. but we're about out of time, but I want to ask you the last thing is, is about you, you're here in the States and I, I internet stalked you. I saw that you, I saw an Instagram post that you were here and uh, I'd been, people had requested to have you on and I was like, no, he lives in Australia. Like, forget <laughs> it. But so I, I jumped on the opportunity and I really appreciate it. But you are here because you um, have made a few portal edges like you're back in the game. Well, yeah, I, I, I have a new portal edge design. It's called the D4 portal edge. And basically it all started. I take my uh, we go to Rapalese every year uh, in Australia. To, mm-hmm. And my boy and I have been doing some multi pitch climbs, you know, five. So lucky five, you, man. That's so fun. So great. It's, it's it's a dream, actually. Yeah. I love I mean, that's if I could just do one more climb, I'd want to climb. You know, three pitch route with my boy. You know, so yeah. fun. And uh, and anyway, there was a climber there, Chris uh, Troll, and he just approached me, and he, he knew about my climbing because you know in Australia it's, I'm, I'm pretty anonymous, which I like. And uh, but uh, you know, so he started telling me about like, oh, we need some lightweight tools, you know, portal edge. We need some portal edges like you used to make. And so I started working on designs. And the first thing I did was just think of it, re-engineered the frame for a bigger ledge because I realized people wanted a bigger ledge. And so I re-engineered the frame. And I call it the hybrid diameter. It's just a simple, really change. But I used some CAD tools that I'd learned at uh, University of New South Wales to, to sort of re-engineer the frame. And then I came up with this idea of the curved corners, which add rigidity to the frame. And so 
so that was another step. And at this time, I was just sort of throwing the ideas out there on Super Topo and, you know, maybe with the hopes that somebody would make it. And then I realized, okay, I got to do this. I got to just make this next generation Portal Edge. And so I started a Kickstarter in March, I think, and we sold, we pre-sold 36 Portal Edges, D4. And, we, and now uh, we're in the process of building them. And basically every summer, we, part of my agreement with my wife is that we come back to America every summer to visit our families. And so, so during this trip, uh, it just so happened that uh, I got back in touch with my old um, A5 part, you know, cohort, Barry Ward, and he was just setting up a sewing shop in Durango. And so he and I started like, just making a few prototypes at first and... Um, and I think in the last, uh, it's really been a great process the last three or four months, really, because we've really improved like so many things that were just nagging little aspects of being able to deploy the ledge quickly, to be able to uh, have a very sheltered fly, but also be able to open it up during between storms to dry things out. You know, these things that are actually really critical for survival if you're going to go for the next step. And and. And the main thing is that we've really reduced the weight for a full-size portal edge. Uh, you know, we've, we've shaved off 10 pounds off the current Cliff Cabana, which is the, 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 my old A5 design that's been modified and added, a few things added to it. And that weighs like 30 pounds now. And so we've basically almost half the weight of that and also a small pack size. Because mm-hmm. when, you're, when you're thinking about approaching uh, these big climbs out in the remote mountains, you need to have something that's compact so you, you're not off balance. Well, yeah, totally. Like when you're carrying your haul bag, there's always that, there was always that frickin' ledge like yeah. sticking up and grabbing trees and exactly. all that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> so, so having something, you know, compact, you know, basically, you know, it's back to that idea of creating something that's just an invisible tool. Uh, and so I think we've really done it. I think we, we've actually produced this next paradigm in, in portal edges, which I hope will help, you know, climbers like, look more to those remote mountains mm-hmm. because now they have a, a lightweight uh, tool that they can survive anything. And, um, I remember seeing, you know, one of those film festivals that travels around climbing shows, and there was a hilarious film. I, I can't remember if they're Norwegian or, or Scandinavian climbers, and they're in Baffin Island. It was a hilarious film, and, uh, and they're looking up at this wall in Baffin Island, and, like, and they had one of the giant portal edges of... Uh, you know, that are being made today. And they're looking up this wall. Like, we want to climb this, but we don't want to take this big giant thing. You know, and they throw it down. And, and then, of course, in the next uh, scene, you know, they're sitting shivering on some ledge in, <laughs> in the twilight of the Baffin Island night. And, uh, and I realized, like, you know, these guys have never even seen what a lightweight tool is. Right. They think that a portal edge is just this giant, big, heavy thing. And so that, that helped inspire me, too. And then, I, of course, I met Mark Reganoff, Reg, Reg, Reganovitz in Yosemite last mm-hmm. fall. And, you know, he's sort of the epitome of, of, of what I what I wanted to design gear again for because he's out there soloing new routes in Baffin Island and remote places and he needs a lightweight tool. Right. So, so there was enough inspiration to get back into it, I guess. And, uh, and so, yeah, I'm pretty proud of this new design, the D4 portal edge. And, uh, you know, I don't know what we're going to do after we fulfill all the Kickstarter orders, but hopefully, you know, the design will keep, keep getting made because I do feel like it will help climbers. Well, achieve it, new it occurred to me that it, it took, it took you, someone like you, to, ha- to have the knowledge of these little things that are deficient over the years, you see, and you're all basically your original designs that have now, you know, they're like the rock craft of, I mean, they're, they're 30 years old. Exactly. And so, but the other thing I realized is that, you know, it, it's such 
a small market. And I, re- I was going to ask you about that when you t- talked about starting A5 of like building these hammers basically for your friends. Yeah. You know, <laughs> not a million, you know, not a multi-million dollar, like going to get rich and sell, you know, tens of thousands of these things where a company, you know, with the resources of, of like the North Face, uh, Black Diamond, you know, Metolius, whoever, it's like a hard sell to be like, yeah, let's make 30 portal edges, you know? It, yeah. uh, and so it takes some small people with a passion project who, you know, they want to see these things exist. And if they pay for themselves or, you know, some make a little money, great. But it, it just, it just the market is not there, I don't think, for no, a bigger no, company portal to edges do are, something like that. They're, yeah. yeah, there's small volume and low margin. Yeah, and, super uh, you low. Know, I mean, there's I a lot that goes into making one. Exactly, yeah. We've really uh, done a lot of work for... And yeah, we might break even with a Kickstarter, probably not. But uh, to me, it's worth it as the investment for the climbing community, really, just right. to produce something that um, you know, allows that next, uh, next generation, really. So where does this, I mean, you can, no one can order one right now. Uh, well, you can you, beg you to, you to can pre-order, I guess, but, uh, but yeah, basically <laughs> it's going to be up to Barry. Cause I, I, I live in Tasmania sure. and basically buying tubing there is like th- four times the cost. Sure. And I have a sewing machine over there and I can sew, but then to ship it is 200 bucks. Yeah. So it's just, uh, not really being living in Tasmania. Isn't really a great place to try to run a business, especially in the markets, mostly in Europe and America, but hopefully Barry will continue to, to produce them. Is there any way for people to bug D4? right now touch yeah yeah guys. there is a way i have a facebook page it's um it's facebook.com slash big wall gear all one word and uh, and i post all the updates and and i've really been transparent with this design actually i just like put it all out there like here's how i engineered it here's here's all the secrets and uh, and you know for me innovation you know you I, I understand people are going to probably copy it. I hope they, you know, do in a way because it's definitely a better product for mm-hmm. climbers. And uh, and but at the same time, you know, if we wanted to keep the brand going, it's the, my philosophy is just keep out innovating. You sure. know, the competition because you're always going to, you know, the, the the original innovators will, you know, even though they might not get the market distribution because of the the network, but uh, you know, you'll still always be pushing the boundary of like what's the the best. So. So, yeah, I, I still plan to be involved with that. I actually have some new products, too, because my interest has always been folding systems. So when, after I, I finished my climbing business... Uh, You're an so, origami guy. Well, kind of, yeah, but more <laughs> structural folding. And, uh, yeah, but origami is interesting, and mathematically, of course. And, right. uh, but, yeah, so, you know, I got into fabric architecture. That was, that was what I did after I got into climbing. And th- I still have dreams of, like, producing, like, some large-scale fabric architecture structural you know with fabric and uh, but of course that's a lot of i i, I need to it's, it, there needs to be more funding for that kind of project but um so right now i'm actually working on some tent designs and just folding systems that um, will allow quicker deploy of uh, systems that you might need in the outdoors yeah well i mean anybody out there is a wall climber and even with your original ledges like we've all been in the middle of the night banging something together <laughs> just like waiting for the rain or in the rain or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, like maybe the most frustrating moments on a big wall is when you can't get your goddamn poor ledge together. Yeah. So, yeah. So again, you're like thinking through these things that still takes practice. The D4, yeah. you know, you still want to practice yeah. it. It's, it's not as completely self-assembling ledge, but it is a lot easier than right. the old ones. And, 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 and as I say, these new ideas I'm working on actually are uh, quicker deploys. All right. But, uh, 
Yeah. Well, cool. Uh, hopefully people will get in touch with you. And uh, thanks a lot for sitting down. Is there anything we, we missed? Oh, well, I don't know. I mean, know, there's a lot we missed. We didn't even talk about Zion. Uh, I mean, oh, I you, you had a whole <laughs> wall career post Yosemite and Zion because you were based out of Hurricane. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so much more to talk about, but, but we've but, killed over an hour. So. Yeah. But uh, yeah, well, thank you so much, Chris. It's really an honor to be able to speak to you. And, and uh, thank you. You, 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 I love your normal cast and it's so fun to listen to what's happening in the climbing world these days. Yeah. Thanks a lot. And, and, uh, again, had so much respect for you when I was a wall climber and it continues to this day. So I appreciate you sitting down. Thank you so much. All right, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks to John for sitting down. Glad I caught him while he was here in the States. It was a real pleasure. Bit of a hero to me back in the day, and uh, it was great to sit down and talk to him. Also, somebody that's so psyched about climbing and about design that he's going to uh, throw his weight towards a new portal edge, which is you know not necessarily a scheme to get you that retirement cottage in the Hamptons or anything like that. Definitely just a passion project, wants to produce something and see it used and uh, maybe push things forward a little bit. So you can check out the Portal Edge, the D4 at Big Wall Gear on Facebook, the Big Wall Gear page, or bigwallgear.com also has information about the D4, whether you can still get one, what's going to happen with that. Kind of um, up in the air, I think. I think they've fulfilled their Kickstarter orders and uh, are going from there. So if you're interested in one of these ledges, go check out the D4 Portal Edge. Just Google it. It's right there. Oh, and if you're an investor, you have some money lying around, you want to throw towards mass producing the D4, I'm sure they would love to hear from you. All right. Once again, happy birthday to the Enormacast and happy holidays to you guys. Stay safe out there this holiday season. Lots of bad travel conditions, lots of drinking, lots of mania out there during this season. So, Take care of each other, look out for each other, and if you're out there climbing, whether it's ice or rock or just going to the gym to shake off all that sugar you've been pounding and maybe clear your head from too much family conversation, just remember, rock, ice, or plastic, you better check your knot. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>